are listening to a new series of the UCL Statistical Science Podcast. In this conversations, we speak with accomplished and interesting UCL alumni who have worked across a wide spectrum of applications and industries, and we share their career stories, achievements, and advice. Whether you're an aspiring statistician or simply curious about the world of data science, this podcast is for you. Hi everyone, I'm Nathan Green. I'm a member of the department, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Michael Baxter, who's an alumni of the department, and he's going to be telling us about his time at UCL and what he's been doing since, which is a lengthy list. And I'm very much looking forward to that. So, before we get into all that, would you mind briefly introducing yourself, Michael? My name is Michael Baxter. I'm I took my MSc in UCL. I graduated in 1977. I was, at the time, the youngest person ever to get an MSc with distinction in statistics because I'd uh, arrived at UCL 17 and got my BSc when I was 20. And I got my MSc on a civil service bursary and I was in the civil service for many years. And I've now left the civil service and I'm working for a market research firm called Cantar. That's a tease for like some of the things that we can talk about. So you said you were at UCL in what year? Well, I took my BSc from 73 to 76. That was in the maths department. Yes. And I did my master's 76 to 77. And what was UCL like at that time? It was a very good place to be. I had very high standards. Students were well disciplined. Uh, we didn't have any of the rowdyism that's universities had at the time and uh, of course there was an enormous sense of history um the maths department was actually the oldest building we occupied it was what predated the main building um in the maths department we had uh, it was a very distinguished lineup we had two fellows of the royal society as the joint heads plus another two who were emeritus professors still knocking around and uh, taken a maths degree because that was my good subject and i hadn't really given much thought to what i'd do with it um my father was a civil servant he said I could become a civil servant, but not as a mathematician, but as a statistician, because they were much better treated. So I applied to be a government statistician, and they said, well, yes, you're a very suitable person, but you don't know enough statistics. Would you like a bursary to do a master's in statistics? And fine. And I thought, well, I know UCL, and I know it's got a very good statistics department. I'll go back there. So I did that. That was a bit of a mistake because the MSc tended to assume you had a degree in statistics, whereas most statistics MSCs assume you had a degree in maths. But uh, I, I enjoyed the challenge. Yeah, a challenge in math by the sounds of things. So what sort of things did you do in the MSc? I did a range of subjects, like time series and um, Bayesian decision analysis, index number theory. Yeah, which was very useful when I went to on the retail prices index later. Um, I did my thesis on the properties of the Pareto distribution. I was supervised by Rex Galbraith, and I extracted some of the results of that, and I had it published in uh, Metrica. It's had, I think, 56 citations, according to Google Scholar. It was actually the uh, first refereed paper I had published. The second one was about Lewis Carroll. Not about the Pareto distribution. No, no um, I had a lifelong interest in Lewis Carroll. And it's well known that many of his poems are parodies of poems that have been well known to his audience. 
and one of his poems that was assumed to be just sort of general burlesque of the style of the Border Ballads. I was able to demonstrate that it was a close parody of one Border Ballad in particular. And I even demonstrated that there were several published versions and which published version was the closest to what he'd parodied. That's interesting. So where, where do you get that published then? The Jonathan Lewis Carroll Society. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> Very good. So was it usual for a master's student to publish papers? No, but uh, Rex Galbraith thought it was well worth publishing. Mm, yeah, it sounds like it. And what were people's perspectives on Bayesian statistics at that time? You mentioned Bayesian stats. The department was very divided. The head of the department, Dennis Lee, was, of course, the uh, leading Bayesian statistician in, in Britain at the time. But the, the other professor, Mervyn Stone, was much more sceptical about Bayesianism. And we used to have uh, the Journal Club, where all the lecturers and the postgrads got together and discussed things. And we had some interesting debates about Bayesian statistics. But literally, you said you had two heads of department and one of them was Bayesian and one yes. of them not so. So you were literally split. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So I've got no idea what UCL was like in the 70s. The department was in a different building, right? Yes. On the left as you come into the main quadrangle. So nowadays we're not in the main quad. We're out on the side street. Yeah. It was interesting that you said that you're... Dad said, you can't be a mathematician, you have to be a statistician in the civil service. And I kind of always thought that statistics was sort of looked down upon relative to mathematics until relatively recently. The way the civil service was, to some extent still is structured, is mathematicians were scientific officers and statisticians were a separate class, government statisticians. And we were fast streams. The idea was that we would get to what's now called grade seven in a much shorter time than most civil servants would most civil servants ever get to grade seven. Yeah, so it sounds like you excelled at your time with the BSc and your master's. Then what did you start working on when you, in those early days? The population statistics. First, I was doing projections. We always kept much more than forecasts of the population of uh, individual counties and major cities that are important for uh, town planning and things. Then I was moved on to population estimates, uh, now casting, if you like. And in 1981, I was sent to the Bureau of the Census in Washington to find out how they did population estimates. And they said that on the whole, they didn't have much to teach us because they'd had to develop all sorts of clever statistical techniques, but that's because they had lousy data. We had much better data, they said, and we wouldn't need these techniques. But one thing I learned from them, they'd just taken the 1980 census, and they showed me how they had checked the census and particularly how they'd estimated the undercount. So when I got back home, we'd taken the 1981 census, and I thought it would be interesting to try and apply these American techniques to see the undercount of the 81 census. And that was important because we would have to revise all the population estimates back to 1971 to in the light of the census. And I told my boss, you know, the undercount in, the, in, the, in our census in 81 and also in 71 is much bigger than the census people are claiming. And my boss said, oh, write this up and tell them. So I did that, and they weren't very amused. But um, he was a wonderful boss, Terry Orchard, and uh, he, he uh, persuaded everybody that I was right. I can't remember the exact figures. I think, I think they said the undercount was something like 40,000. I'd say it was 250,000, which on a population of 50 million is not enormous, but it's enough to affect the figures appreciably. So that, that was the Office of Population Census and Surveys, which is now part of the Office of National Statistics. 
And then in 1983, I moved to road accidents and transport. And the big issue there was compulsory seatbelt wearing. They just brought in the law say, saying that every driver and front seat passenger had to wear a seatbelt, certain exceptions. This was very controversial at the time. People said, oh, the nanny state, and what's the government doing telling us to do this and that and the other? So the government said, right, we will do it for a three-year trial period and see what happens. And the confident expectation of results would be so clear-cut that nobody would argue. Sure enough, it was absolutely clear that there was a reduction in deaths and serious injuries of about 20% for drivers and 25% for front seat passengers. But people argued. They said that they'd changed the definition of uh, serious injury so that they're um, saying that people are no longer seriously injured when previously they said they would have been. So we said, well, let, let's just look at deaths. Maybe there's been an increase in rear seat deaths uh, or uh, pedestrians being hit by drivers or cyclists being hit by drivers. There's actually somebody from UCL, not, not a statistician, a geographer called uh, John Adams, and he had the theory that you can never improve things by improving safety precautions because people just get more complacent and careless. He called that risk homeostasis. And if quite worked out how people could be just enough careless to make no change. But uh, anyway, it just wasn't true. Yes, there was a small increase in uh, bicycle casualties, but no increase in pedestrian casualties. But uh, you know, the powers that be in the Department of Transport got worried. And uh, they said, well, let's have an external review by somebody very eminent. And they got the then president of the International Statistical Institute, uh, James Durbin, to do a review. And he had an assistant, Andrew Harvey, who later became a professor of econometrics at Cambridge, um, postdoctoral student, um, Simon. And uh, after a while, he got a permanent job as a lecturer somewhere in Manchester. So James Durbin asked the Department of Transport to loan somebody to them to do the uh, nitty-gritty work that Simon had been doing. So uh, I spent uh, six months at uh, LSE. As a result, I am on the books as a former po postdoctoral student at LSE, although I've never started there, and of course I don't have a PhD. But anyway, uh, it was absolutely conclusive that uh, seatbelt wearing was wearing a good thing and the law became permanent. Yeah, I mean, it seems odd nowadays for such a pushback. The, the comparison I could think of is with a cyclist wearing helmets. Yes. Yeah, but it's clear, obviously, it's, it's much more dangerous uh, driving a speeding car without a seatbelt. It's clear that this uh, geographer was talking about this thing like, if you were to wear a seatbelt, you would take more risks, would you? Or you drive more recklessly or something like yes. that. Right, I see. And you're saying that, like, you'd really have to be on the threshold for that to not be beneficial. Okay. Yeah. I, oh yeah. It's very interesting. It's it's seen, like I said, it seems very strange nowadays. I remember going to a talk by the, uh, one of the statisticians who was involved with showing how it was a bad thing to smoke on airplanes. Well, nowadays, if you can imagine, and that was only stopped relatively recently, and it, can you imagine it, how strange it would be for someone to see someone smoking on a plane? The things change. <laughs> so you've already been through working on very different types of projects in, yes. in different groups. Yes. It's one of the great things about being a government statistician. You never know what you're going to do next. Yeah, well, generally as a statistician, I, yeah, I can speak to that. But we, even within uh, one organisation that you had these opportunities, that sounds really cool. So I was 27 when I started in uh, road accidents. 
Yes, the rather interesting episodes there, like the government was proposing to turn the clocks forward an hour so that um, at the same time as, Europe, as Central Europe. And one of the arguments was basically reduce road accidents. And uh, I did an analysis and I found that it wouldn't. And that very much weakened the case for doing this change. And of course, it was never done. And uh, there was something that was a bit party political that um, while I was there, the GLC brought in something called fares fare, where there was a massive reduction in the uh, tube fares and bus fares. And some boroughs didn't like it because, of course, they had to pay for it. And they, they brought in a court order. And uh, the judge said, no, there hadn't been enough proper consultation. So uh, he terminated it. And later, after the proper consultation was reintroduced. But uh, I was asked to look, had it affected road accidents? Because uh, if more people were using public transport, it would reduce traffic and that should reduce road accidents. And sure enough, road accidents dropped while first fare was in. And rose again when it ended. And I was going to publish this in Road Accidents Great Britain. And the policy people said, you can't publish this, it's against government policy. So the director of statistics said, how can the facts be against government policy? You can stop me publishing Mr. Baxter's commentary. You can't stop me publishing his figures. This will appear as table number one in Road Accidents Great Britain. And people say, what's this table doing here? And I'll tell them. So they back down. Right, so that is published. Yes. Right, (laughs) excellent. So is there some sort of sweet spot of at some point people will still keep using their cars and not want to use public transport? Even if public transport is made free, people, some people will be using their cars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, the issue of public transport and uh, how to improve road safety by reducing traffic is, is very live. You have the um, still life issue about um, ULES being extended to, to the to out of London. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's not so much a a traffic, a road traffic accident issue. If if they can get uh, elderly cars off the road, it probably would reduce road accidents. Yes. So, is there someone? Is there a civil servant somewhere looking at that sort of thing right now? I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it sounds like it from what you've been saying. It's really, really interesting. Fair's fair, it was called, right? That's fair, F A R E S, and fair, F A I R. Okay, so that was to do with seatbelts and road traffic accidents, and then you were looking at uh, bus statistics, is that right? Yes. So what were you doing there? Well, bus statistics had been a bit of a backwater because nobody was really interested in them, but I arrived at a time when it suddenly had become interesting because the government had a policy of selling off the National Bus Company and the um, Scottish Bus Group and deregulating, you know, you bring the healthy competition into it, they said. And the, uh, the minister, Michael Portillo, was his first ministerial job, so he was very keen to make an impact. So uh, I was doing a quarterly and, a, and an annual survey of bus operators, and I found that uh, use of buses was going down as a result of these measures. Well, at the same time as these measures were introduced. Obviously, obviously correlation doesn't necessarily causation. Mm-hmm. But um, this worried people because that was contrary to government policy. And somebody else, not me, was actually given the job of trying to, quote, demonstrate that it, uh, it was having to do with uh, the government's measures, which, of course, was an impossible job because all the other factors were slowly changing over time, whereas this was one sudden shock. So, so we had to be very careful what we said. And one of the issues was that the government gave money to bus operators to give free, free or reduced fares to the elderly and general subsidy, which would um, route support. The government tried to say, look how much... We're reducing this route support by giving them money 
because giving the money to uh, have reduced fares for children, which had hitherto not been specifically subsidised. So in every statistical publication, we had to say very carefully that there's so much subsidy for the elderly, so much subsidy for children, which previously would have been included in the other group, which didn't please the, the um, policy people, but you know, they had to be statistically rigorous. So um, that, that is definitely the most political job I've ever had. Yeah, I can imagine where politics crosses over with statistics or the facts. There's different pressures on there. Yes, it, it, it's always difficult if you're a government statistician. On the one hand, you have to be ethical, and uh, on the other hand, you don't have to annoy people too much. Yes, that's right. Was, um, when they brought in the um, community charge, the poll tax, I thought we called it, the government decreed that it wasn't a tax. And the National Council people said, well, it is technically a tax under the usual rules. But they weren't allowed to treat it as a tax for national accounts purposes. That would now be impossible because um, we follow the European system of accounts, and if we suddenly started diverging from it, people would say, Well, you're doing that. Then I became a grade seven and I went into the central statistical office. I was actually the last person to join the central statistical office while it was still part of the cabinet office. Uh, a couple of weeks later, it was hived off and made much bigger. It was various other bits of the government statistical service were put into it to make it a viable, central, a viable separate department. And my first job was the wonderful title of head of methodology for the, for, for the government statistical service. The idea was that I was supposed to be a source of advice to anybody who need, needed more technical backup. And uh, I made a number of uh, statistical innovations. But, uh, too technical to go into here. It was a very enjoyable job. For the first time in my career, I was really, really using my MSc in some sophisticated statistics. Then I got moved over into the uh, retail prices index. Was there had been an error in the RPI? The RPI is never, never revised for legal reasons. So when they had to admit a mistake, you know, in any other statistic, they'd say we have revised the figures. But we had to say sorry, there's a mistake. As a result, it was a National Audit Office investigation. And they made a number of recommendations. And my post was originally uh, intended to implement these recommendations, which I did. But then in America, they published something known as the Boskin Report, which said that the American CPI overestimated inflation by 1.2% a year. And uh, people all around the world, in, 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 I wonder if the measure of inflation is overestimating inflation. Wouldn't that be a good thing if we can reduce inflation to stroke by changing the methodology? And a number of battles with the Treasury, we said, no, you're not going to change the methodology. We're not the United States. Our methodology is different. It's much better, actually. So we're not going to copy what they do. And then also, because of monetary union in the EU, they decided to create a harmonised index of consumer prices that we produced on exactly the same methodology in every country so they could rigorously compare inflation rates. I wasn't actually the person who went to Brussels to discuss it, but uh, I advised them. And uh, one of the big things was that they said that to combine price quotes for a particular item, you, you should take a geometric mean of the price changes and not an arithmetic mean, as everybody uh, was doing. Of course, the geometric mean is always less than the arithmetic mean. So uh, the Treasury was saying, why don't we use a geometric mean in the retail prices index? And we said no. The other thing about the retail prices index is it was the only statistic published by the Central Statistical Office where the final decision did not rest with us. The Chancellor had certain powers to control the RPI, and the Treasury stretched that to the breaking point to interfere with what we were doing. But uh, we were absolutely firm; we were not going to switch to the geometric mean. So after I left, the Treasury very carefully got round it by saying, well, we won't use the RPI anymore. We'll use the harmonised index, we call it the CPI. 
Typically, the CPI shows an inflation rate about 1% lower than the RPI. And at the moment, the inflation is so high, the difference is much greater. And they boasted, you know, isn't it a good idea to use this European measure, which is an international standard? So we can't be, it can't be rigged. They didn't point out that, A, it hadn't been created to be used for the same purposes as the RPI, like uprating pensions or basis for negotiations for pay. And B, no other major country in the EU used it for domestic purposes. One of the small ones did because they couldn't manage to produce two indices. But France, Germany, Italy uh, carried on using the, their own measures. We, we were completely robbed one out among the, the major countries. And the Royal Statistical Society didn't like the CPI. And they was a working group of which I was a member that produced a critique of it. And uh, it's something we're still within the Royal Statistical Society taking an active interest in. And I'm now a member of the National Statistics Advisory Group within the Royal Statistical Society. And of course, whenever anything to do with the RPI comes up, we ask my opinion. Was this not settled a long time ago? People trying to interfere or change how it's calculated? Or what's the current situation? Well, we can't change the way the CPI is calculated very easily. But what we can do is say, don't use it for domestic purposes like uprating pensions. Produce a different measure. There's something called the Household Cost Index, which is still in the experimental stage, which is exactly that. It's a different measure of inflation. Well, one of the interesting things about it is that um, it's going to be produced for different income ranges. So you can see it is well known that inflation affects people with different incomes by different amounts. For example, at the moment, food inflation is much higher than inflation in most other items. And poor people spend a higher proportion of their expenditure on food than rich people do. So at the moment, inflation is higher for lower income households. And this will be shown very clearly by having separate household cost indices for different groups. Right. Well, that's very topical right now. So when they talk about it on the news, perhaps they should be talking about it in a bit more of a nuanced way. Well, you just count on the news. You might be able to in a half hour program devoted mm. to the subject. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I think you're right. So you're still working on the RPI. So, but how long were you the head of methodology for? The head of methodology was four years, 89 to 93. Then RPI was five years, 93 to 98. Mm-hmm. And then I got moved into another controversial area. In national accounts, what is the output of the government? If you're a manufacturer, it's easy enough. How many widgets do you produce? But for the government, the traditional way worldwide was to say, well, the output equals the input. You, you say, how many staff have you got? What's your uh, procurement and um, adjusted for inflation? And considerable work going on in many countries about measuring output more directly. In Australia, they had been very serious. They had nine people working on it full time. I was working on it part time in addition to actually producing the, the routine figures. I had with one assistant. But uh, I, th- I think I made quite good progress in the circumstances. And I had the interesting experience of delivering a talk to the OECD, simultaneous translation. I tabled the paper in English and in French. I delivered it in English and it was being translated into several different languages as I spoke. And that was um, put of uh, fire brigades and magistrates' courts. Fire brigades, most of their work isn't actually dealing with fires. They do things like if there's a major road accident, they have to, have to cut the people out of the woods. If there's a, an oil spill, they have to wash the road down to get rid of the oil. And also they spend an enormous amount of time going out, giving talks on 
and, and doing inspections to, to improve safety and prevention better than cure, of course. Council trees? Yes. It's not a huge part of it, but it does happen. Yes, okay. But um, I think about National County, it's a very arcane area. I don't think I ever really understood everything that goes on in National County, but that's how the government sector, just anything I was working on. Did you work in, you worked in health as well, did you? Was that around that time? Health was a bit later. I left National Accounts to, because I was told it'd be good for my career if I did a completely non-statistical job. So I spent two years as head of farm animal welfare. And that was quite a nightmare of a job because that was the time when they had the foot and mouth epidemic. Good timing. It's not an learnt some sort of things that most statisticians would never come across, like a, how, to, how to get uh, statutory instruments through Parliament. I got three through and one about the welfare of battery hens and one about the welfare of intensively reared pigs, which were implementing uh, European Union directives. So in retrospect, it was quite interesting, but I didn't enjoy it at the time. Yes, okay, it's good to look back on. And then I went to transport. That was mainly concerned with the um, accessibility of services. There was a thing called the social exclusion unit, and they said that maybe people are being socially excluded because they can't easily access services. For example, if you're in a system where uh, you leave school at 16, you have to leave school at 16 and go to a further education college to do A-levels. And the transport is such that you can't easily get to a further education college to drop out. If it's very difficult to get to hospital, you might miss your appointments, which will affect your health. There's a whole lot of issues about that. So I came up with a series of um, measures to estimate how easy it was to access all these different services in different parts of the country. And it was put into the index of multiple deprivation, which access to services is negatively correlated with deprivation. The reason being that the most deprived areas of the country are all in inner city areas like Tower Hamlets or um, Toxip in Liverpool, which have very good public transport facilities. And of course, there are rich areas in big cities, but they often have poorer public transport than um, the poorer areas because they seem Everybody's got cars, they don't need to have such good public transport. So um, I was actually, by my measures, significantly reducing the range of deprivation between different parts of the country. Just one of these uh, statistical quirks. Yeah, well, it's, I suppose the difference between being public transport and being sort of connectivity, because you might have your own car. And yeah, that, that is interesting. Yes, well, access to cars, you say, oh, look, 90% of households in this area have a car, they're fine. Trouble is that the husband takes the car off to work every day and the wife is left without a car, assuming she's got a driving license. So, you know, allowing for cars is actually quite a non-straightforward business. Okay. <laughs> it's never straightforward, is it? That's probably a rule of thumb. So then I went to health and I was concerned with payments to pharmacists. Not the statistics of the, what drugs were dispensed. There's somebody else doing that. But pharmacists then, some, quite some years ago, paid about £2 billion a year to dispense prescriptions, which is significantly more than that now. And I had to make forecasts of demand for prescriptions so that they could, uh, and then other, other things that we paid pharmacists for, so that they could tweak the amounts to keep within budget. We were constantly negotiating with PSNC, the Pharmaceutical Services Negotiating Committee. and. A substantial proportion of this two billion was a hidden subsidy that pharmacists would dispense a medicine and they would charge not only their fees for dispensing but also across the cost of the medicine and they were reimbursed at the listed price of the medicine but often they could get it cheaper 
something like 300 million of that 2 billion was what we estimated they were able to get by doing that. And this is totally above board. We knew they were doing mm, it. Like a builder. And um, it had two advantages. One is that it made the reimbursement much simpler. We didn't have to ask them for all their invoices. And the other was because they kept hunting around, hunting around to get lower prices, it kept prices down. Yeah. So it was actually a good system. And I did the survey of pharmacists to find out how much money they were actually making. And I found it was something like 600 million rather than 300 million. And because the uh, pharmacists didn't like that, because we said, right, we'll, we'll cut the reimbursement prices. And they said, well, pharmacists are going, we're going to go bankrupt if we do that. And they challenged my analysis. And they got in a consultant who said, no, I've done it all wrong. And I told my bosses, right, if they've got a consultant, we've got to get a better consultant. <laughs> so I asked people at the ONS, who do you go to for advice on uh, surveys? I said, oh, it's uh, Southampton University. So they um, so I approached Southampton and they recommended Pedro de Silva, who was later actually the uh, president of the International Statistics Institute, very eminent statistician. And uh, he looked at what I'd done. He said, uh, on the whole, it's right. The, the, the sampling error is a bit better than you, a bit bigger than you've estimated. Otherwise, but your central estimate is correct. So um, pharmacists kept arguing that basically we, we cut the, uh, the prices. And the next year I did another survey and they were still making too much money, so we cut the prices again. So in the context of the total cost of the NHS, it's not enormous. It's appreciable. Yes. And if it's, it sounds like a very rigorous analysis, it's totally justifiable. And after that, for various reasons, uh, I left the civil service and I ended up in um, market research. We work on how many people watch television which is a big deal because... Uh, advertising, it, is it? Yes, you know, it's a huge fortune spent on television advertising. And it's not, we don't just do it in this country. We do it everywhere from the Philippines to, to Peru. Wow, okay. Well, didn't they used to have a box like that you'd have on top of the television yeah. to do yeah. that? And so how do they do it nowadays? Well, with, with classical television, that's exactly what you do. But um, of course, it's not as simple as that. You've got to uh, have a panel and... Uh, make sure the panel's unbiased and so on. But, but things getting more and more complicated. I need to remember that I think that, uh, in 1990, there were only four television channels in this country. Mm, I remember, yes. <laughs> we monitor hundreds, literally hundreds now. Are there enough viewers across all of those hundred channels in, in order to monitor them all? Well, you know, like the 9% of people watch 10 channels. Yeah, yes, only. The small, the small channels... Um, the viewing figures are so low, we can only give you an annual estimate. Whereas for the BBC and the ITV, we can give you minute by minute. Right, right. The, the people who own these small channels want to know how many people are watching them. Yes, I suppose so, yes. <laughs> but you're still involved with the Royal Statistical Society, are you? Oh, yes. I'm, as I said, I'm a member of the National Statistics Advisory Group. And uh, I've just had help to set up a new section within the group on uh, financial and economic statistics. Um, what are you going to cover with that group? Oh, quite a lot. Um, insurance, national accounts, anything that's covered by financial and economic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, it seems like a, a group that should have been set up before now rather than <laughs> recently. As you said, uh, I was chairman of a, a different section of the RSS at one point, the uh, official statistics section. Yeah, which is arguably the, the oldest type of statistics there yeah. is, right? <laughs> yeah, it was one of the first sections that was set up. Yes, yes. And I've been involved with the medical section for a while. That's also a very old one. 
not these data science, sports analytics people, the new crowd. Right. I mean, the things that you've worked on, the the variety and the interest is remarkable. So if you was something that you wish you'd known when you were a student at UCL that you know now, or a word of advice for, for graduating students, what do you think that would be? I'm not sure I think the government statistical service is as good a career now as it was then. I think if I were a new graduate now, I wouldn't join the government statistical service. I can't make you think of anything else. <laughs> That's what not to do. I mean, I think what you've recounted about your career is tells its own story in that, like with a statistics degree, there's absolute massive variety of things that you can apply yourself to. So many different interesting problems that the same skills can, the different contexts and different types of problems. Yes. So uh, I think that, that speaks volumes, that speaks for itself. So I'm going to end it there, Michael, and to say thank you very much for speaking to us. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've really enjoyed speaking to you and I wish you well in your current work and whatever other completely different, interesting work you do after that. So thank you, Michael. Thank you. UCR Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone.